Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. One of the more difficult things that we all have to do at some point or another in our lives is say goodbye to someone who's had a tremendous impact on us. Well, for between four and five years ago, this chapel had to say goodbye to Mike Eels, who'd been here for over 10 years, I'm sure, had a tremendous impact on all of you. I'm sure there are many people here who miss him, who think, man, uh, Mike just did things in such a way that impacted me in such a way. What a tremendous gift of God. And, and similarly, uh, I think of when I had to leave my church uh, in Dubuque, a church that I'd spent a lot of time in and uh, that had really built me up. And it's not an easy thing, right? It's, it's an inevitable thing in life. Nothing in this world is permanent, right? Uh, we all will have to say goodbye at some point in time or another, but it doesn't make it easy. And one of the things that makes it difficult is we wonder, once I leave, what is going to happen to those that I have left behind? Have I left them in a way where, in which they're prepared for the things that are going to come? Are they going to be ready to handle the world without me there to help them along? Well, that is the situation that the Apostle Paul finds himself in here in Acts chapter 20. So we're in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 17, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul, about to depart, uh, and he is saying a, a final goodbye to the elders in the church of Ephesus before he goes on to Jerusalem. So we'll read the chapter, we'll pray, and we'll get on with the message. So Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But I do not make my life of any account, nor dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus." to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who have been sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to those who are with me. And everything I showed you, that by laboring in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said all these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud, and falling on Paul's neck, they were kissing him, and being in agony, especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to his ship. Our Father, we are thankful for this time that we have here to read your word, to discuss the work that you have done through the Apostle Paul and how his life points us to the life of the Lord Jesus. I pray that uh, we would take the lessons that Paul gives us here. We would see that we ourselves, though we're not in the presence of an apostle, are not without assistance in this life. We are not left alone, but you have provided us everything that we need. We pray that you bless this time. Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is preparing to depart from his third missionary journey. He had spent, as we see, three years with the Ephesians, and that was kind of the central hub of the church in Asia, where Paul had spent a great deal of time ministering them, and he had developed uh, strong relationships with these churches. And Paul, he is now returning back from this third missionary journey, hoping to reach Jerusalem. But Paul does not want to go to Jerusalem without first meeting with the elders of Ephesus. He wants to get to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He is in a rush, but he doesn't want to leave without saying farewell. So we read here that uh, Paul from Miletus, which is a coastal city about 30 miles from Ephesus, called to the elders of the church, and they came to him. Uh, and we get some idea of what the early church looked like, right? Uh, people will argue that, oh, the church did not really have a formal structure until much later on. Uh, but we see here, even early on in the church, that the church had a structure, a leadership structure. And we see that God's intention was for local churches to be under the rule of elders. So even in the early church, we see established leadership structure with elders being appointed in order to shepherd and guide the church. And we see in Paul's missionary journeys, one of the things that he did was appoint elders over the church to shepherd over the flock of God. There are two titles that uh, elders are given, and I guess, and we find them both here. They're called both elders and overseers. 
And later on in church history, we see that the church divided these two roles. Elders would later become priests, while overseers would later become bishops, those who would oversee a a number of local assemblies. But in the New Testament, the word elder and bishop are interchangeable. That word bishop simply just being the word overseer. And we see here that the uh, elders are called, and there is no higher position in the church than a church elder right? There's no papacy. There's no such thing as bishops who are head over certain churches. There's no earthly figure who has an overriding authority over local churches. Even the apostles, though they had apostolic authority, though they spoke on behalf of Jesus, they counted themselves as fellow elders. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, when he speaks to the church, he, sa- he calls the elders his fellow elders. Uh, so we see a little bit of the leadership structure, and that is what the apostles, that is what Jesus has left the church under the care of, elders. So Paul calls these elders, these leaders, these overseers of the church, and he begins his discourse saying that you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot into Asia until uh, how I was with you that whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. So Paul is appealing to the faithfulness of his ministry. At this point in time, he'd been there for about three years, and and over the course of three years, you can become quite close to uh, the people that you were serving. I've been here at the Atlantic Gospel Chapel for about three years now, uh, coincidentally enough, and I feel that this chapel truly is my family. Uh, so we see how these relationships can be formed. And Paul, he is appealing to the fact that I did not come here in a self-serving manner, uh, but rather you saw my selflessness, you saw my great love for you as I sought to minister to you and serve you, how I was emotionally invested in you, how he describes his service as being with tears, so appealing to this selflessness that he had, this humility that he had, and how they were eyewitnesses to this. And he did this through the plots of the Jews. He did this through every certain, every kind of turmoil. He did it in a very self-serving way. The Apostle Paul, when he lived in Ephesus, he lived uh, on his own dime, so to speak. Uh, he did not demand anything from them to, for them to provide for his living or anything. He worked to take care of himself, to provide for himself and those who are with them. He tirelessly taught month after month for two years in the school of Tyrannus, as we had already read, likely taking what would have been free time on his part to minister to the saints. And he also taught concern, uh, without concern for his own life. He knew that every single time he was in public that he was at risk of being put to death by zealous Jews who were chasing him around. Uh, And yet he went and continued to minister to them. And he unwaveringly taught the Ephesians during this time everything that was necessary for them to know. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul, when he was with them, he did not shrink back. He was unwavering in his ministry. He did not hesitate to teach those things that were profitable. And there would be a tremendous amount of reason for for anyone 
who is teaching the Word of God to hesitate. Because there are things that the Word of God teaches that do not go over well among a general audience. There are things that the Word of God teaches that may not even go over well among those who are Christians, right? And there would be a great temptation for a teacher to soften these elements in the Word of God. Because what can these things do? Well, they can bring ridicule, right? We, uh, the teacher may say something that would drive an audience away. We see that the Apostle Paul, when he was faithfully teaching from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, what was the result? The Jewish people who had the scriptures, who were anticipating the Christ, drove him from, uh, around from city to city. We see ridicule that the Apostle Paul faced when he's preaching to Gentile audiences, and he brings up the resurrection of the dead. What's the response when he is in Athens? Laughter, and most people walk away. And it'd be very easy for the Apostle Paul to say, okay, I had him up to that point. Maybe I'd, uh, next time I mention the resurrection, I'd better say it a little quieter. You know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have that same response. wouldn't want to drive people away because of what the Word of God says. There could have been a great temptation to do that, but the Apostle Paul says, I did not shrink back from these things. These are things that you must know. These are things that are profitable. And there are likewise things in our own day that we can be tempted to shrink back from, not just the person who is up here teaching, but us as we go out into the world carrying out the Great Commission, teaching our family, teaching our friends, our neighbors what the Lord has taught. There are all kinds of moral issues that the Bible teaches on that are not popular in our day and age. The teaching that the life of a child in the womb is indeed a life, that that child is created in the image of God, that doesn't go over well, does it? The teaching that marriage is between a man and a woman, and uh, sex is only to be within the covenant of marriage, <laughs> even the teaching that a, a man is a man and a woman is a woman, is a controversial teaching in our day. Other issues, such as biblical creation, that could draw all kinds of ridicule. Are you so foolish as to believe that everything around us, the whole universe was created by God in only seven days? Well, no, I don't believe it was created in seven days. I believe it was created in six days. On the seventh day, God rested, right? Uh, but that's the attitude that the world has. Uh, and there are also these gospel issues that can drive people away even those who call themselves Christians. Issues such as justification by faith alone. How is it that we are made right before God? Is it through participating in the sacraments? Is it through going to church or whatever else it is? Or is it through faith in the Lord Jesus and what he has done? Can I add anything to my salvation? Is there works that I must do to maintain my salvation? These are things that will divide people if we talk about them. But Paul did not shrink back from talking about these things and declaring that which was profitable. And we... Uh, who seek to emulate Paul must have that same courage as we are declaring the word of God. And we saw that Paul taught both Jews and Greeks indiscriminately. He taught them both in private and in public. 
And the two messages were the same. What Paul taught publicly is also what he taught privately, right? We see him teaching publicly in the synagogue first for three months, the school of Tyrannus several hours a day for two years. We also know he taught from house to house in private settings too. We see a consistency in what Paul said. Right? He didn't say one thing on the pulpit in front of a whole bunch of people, but then something different when it was just him and another person in a one-to-one discussion. It was the same message regardless of where it was preached, and it was also the same message regardless of who it was preached to, right? whether Jews or Greeks. There are not two Gospels, one for the Jews and another one for the Greeks. Right? The message does not change depending on the people group. The same good news applies to all, whether Jew or Greek, Roman, barbarian, wherever they are from. Uh, and what is the content of the message that Paul proclaimed here? The content of the message was this, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And these are two things that go hand in hand, repentance and faith, right? And that is the constant call throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Repent and faith, repent and believe, repent and believe. When God sent the first prophet for 400 years, John the Baptist, what was his message that he brought? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, when his ministry began, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The apostle Peter, after he delivered his first sermon and the people are asking him, what is it that what ye shall do? Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul, when he is among the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but even among the Gentiles, what does he say? Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And we're called to repent. Why? Because naturally, we are oriented away from God. Naturally, we are walking according to the flesh. Naturally, our mind is set on the things of the flesh. And what does it mean to repent? It means to simply change your Mind, and in the context of the Christian faith, means change your mind about sin and turn to God. Change your mind about God. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We continue reading. The Apostle Paul, verse 25, says this, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you all this day that I'm innocent. Oh, I must be in the wrong spot. Uh, Let me back up a little bit. Sorry, I don't have my uh, verses here. Verse 22, I apologize. Verse 22, and now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So here's Paul's ministry, teaching among the Ephesians, day after day, night after night, publicly, privately, Jew, Gentile, proclaiming the message of salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he is going to Jerusalem. Things are about to change. Uh, Being led to to Jerusalem, bound by the Spirit, he says. And this word bound, he's saying, I'm literally constrained Right? This isn't Paul just simply thinking, well, uh, Jerusalem is nice this kind of year, time of year. It seems I better get down there. Paul is saying, no, the Spirit is driving me to Jerusalem. This is where I must go. 
literally constrained, and this is not unlike a bound captive who is being led. In fact, it's the very same word that we find in Acts chapter 9, I'll just read it, where Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the very same word, just as Paul led captives bound to Jerusalem, Paul is saying, I am captive by the Holy Spirit. I am bound to Jerusalem. That is where I must go. And when he goes there, he is not sure what is going to happen to him, other than that he anticipates suffering and imprisonment. The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Remember what the Lord Jesus said of the Apostle Paul when he was first called. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So it's not all sunshine and rainbows for the Apostle. There's suffering that awaits him, and that's one thing that he knows for sure when he goes to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, it, it seems that he's not even sure whether or not he will make it out alive. When he's writing to the Romans about this time, he writes and says to them, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So pray for me that I may be rescued. Pray for me that I'd be able to continue in this ministry, continue in my service for the saints. And yet, at the same time, the Apostle Paul acknowledging that uh, uh, his life is of no account. Verse 24, I do not make my life of any account, nor, uh, nor dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, he's going to Jerusalem. He doesn't know what awaits him. And yet, at the same time, this does not cause him distress, at least for his own personal being. And why is that? Well, because for Paul, what was death? Well, death only brought him to the Lord Jesus. That's why he says to the Philippians, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, yes, this will mean fruitful labor, but... If I, uh, if I am to depart, then I will be with Christ. So death to the Apostle Paul, that just means he gets to see the Lord Jesus. Uh, suffering and hardship in this life, for Paul, only served to glorify God. So even as Paul is going through distress and hardship, he's looking at it not from an earthly perspective of how miserable he is. Rather, he's looking at it from a heavenly perspective in what God is doing through his life. The Apostle Paul, remember when he is suffering his uh, hardship, whatever was afflicting him, when he wrote to the Corinthians and he prayed, Lord, take this affliction away from me. What's the response from God? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather, I will rather boast about my weakness so the power of Christ may dwell in me. The Apostle Paul, remember, he is the one who wrote, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul knows that, hey, if it's my calling to go and suffer in Jerusalem and I don't know what's going to happen, 
Glory be to God. And what an amazing response to have when facing the hardships of life, when facing inevitable difficulties, to know that, okay, it's not just about me, it's about what God is doing in me, and it's about how God is glorifying himself, how God is working all things for good, how God is building up his church in my life. And if my life is to be poured out for that, then praise be to God. That's his attitude, that's his concern, that's the attitude that he has in his life. And his only concern is that while he is alive, that he could carry out the ministry that God had given him, which is preaching the gospel of the grace of God. The good news of what Christ has done to redeem sinners and to call repentance and faith in him. That's what Paul is concerned about, preaching the good news, the gospel of grace. I do not make my life any, uh, I do not make my life of any account, nor dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And if there's anyone who had experienced the grace of God and could freely proclaim that grace of God, it's the Apostle Paul. And what is grace? Grace is giving you what you do not deserve, right? And Paul is a testimony to that grace. Because remember who Paul was, a zealous Jew, zealous for the pharisaical Judaism that twists around the law of God, and uh, zealous to the point where when someone came along claiming to be the Messiah, it was Paul's it was Paul's mission in his mind to make sure they were put to death. That is how sinful Paul was, an enemy of the church of God, carting them off to Jerusalem, giving his approval when they are put to death. And yet, it is this Paul who is called, who is given this great ministry of reconciliation, of calling not just the Jews, but the Gentiles to be reconciled to God. The good news of what Jesus has done in reconciling them in shedding his blood. That is the concern of the Apostle Paul, the gospel of the grace of God. He goes on in verse 25. Um, we continue reading in verse 25. And now, behold, I know that all of you among all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. So Paul is ready to lay down his life if necessary. And one of the reasons he is so confident in leaving the Ephesians is because he, one, he did not shrink back from declaring to them what was profitable and that he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole purpose of God. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all on account of this. And what he really means by this is he has given the Ephesians everything that they need to continue their walk with God without him, right? Uh, it is a sad thing when someone leaves, right? We may wonder, how will we get along? And the Apostle Paul, he doesn't want to leave them in this state. He says, when I leave, you're not left unequipped. In fact, I have already given you everything you need. I have declared to you the whole counsel of God. I am innocent of the blood of anyone. 
And why is he innocent? Well, because any failure on the part of the Ephesians to walk correctly, to walk according to the word of God, did not come from Paul not proclaiming what that was. Paul was accountable to God for proclaiming all that God had spoken. And he would have been accountable to God if he had failed to deliver what God had told him to deliver. And there's a a truth here that we are accountable. We're accountable not only for what we say, but also for what we don't say, right? We're accountable not only for what we say, but also for what we don't say. The pastor, preacher, prophet, overseer, ambassador, whoever it is, whoever it is who is proclaiming the word of God, does not have the right to pick and choose what he will and won't proclaim. And why is that? Because what we are proclaiming is not our word, but God's word, right? When we twist it around and make it our own modified message, that's our word. Our word doesn't have the power to do anything. It's the word of God that has the power. We don't have the right to twist what is said. And God says that he will hold us to account for what we do not say. There's a a really challenging passage, especially for me, in the book of Ezekiel. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. But early on in the book of Ezekiel, God comes to Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. There's a challenging passage. And that's a hard message, isn't it? When I say to the wicked, you will surely die. If you do not tell them that, if you do not warn them, they'll still die for their sins. But guess what, Ezekiel? I'm going to hold you accountable as well. His blood will be on your head. And that's what the Apostle Paul really is saying. No one's blood is on my head because I did not fail to deliver to you the entire counsel of God. And that should be our purposes as well. There's nothing in this book that should be off limits. There's nothing that God has said that we should be afraid to proclaim. Even those hard passages, right? Uh, Warn the wicked. If someone is in sin, what is our responsibility? Call them to repentance. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? Because guess what? If there's one thing that our world hates, it's the idea that there is something that is objectively wrong. The only thing that's objectively wrong in our world is saying that there is something that is objectively wrong, right? Uh, How dare you criticize me for what I do? How dare you say that my lifestyle is wrong? How dare you say that uh, this is the way and there's no other way? That's the attitude of the world. But guess what? We have a God who has spoken, who has given us his word. We don't need to be afraid of it, right? What are we? We're just messengers. We're just mouthpieces. We're just spokesmen, right? They may shoot the messenger, but it's not our fault. Why did they hate us? Well, because they hated him first. But guess what? We can have that same attitude that the Apostle Paul has, where, hey, any harm that befalls on me, it's for the sake of the ministry that God has given me. And whatever that ministry looks like in our own lives, uh, we can have that same attitude of fearlessness, 
So he goes on, be on uh, to give exhortation to the elders. Now be on guard for yourselves and for the whole flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. So Paul now calls on the elders, shepherd the church of God. And there's a couple of things that are in this. First, he calls on them to watch over themselves, right? Be on guard for yourselves first. A shepherd cannot give care for the sheep if he fails to care for himself. Paul, in writing to Timothy, who was in Ephesus, says this, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For, you, uh, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. Right? How can I rightfully proclaim what God has said if I'm not willing to apply that to my own life? And right, this is a difficult thing for someone who uh, publicly teaches to say, right? Because guess what? Whose job is it to keep me accountable to that? Right? You should be saying, all right, keep an eye on yourself. Uh, if I'm to be shepherded correctly, if I'm to be taught correctly, you need to make sure that you are keeping an eye on yourself. He goes on, shepherding the flock of God uh, involves a number of things. So keep, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock. This involves the teaching by both word and deed, uh, giving godly counsel, providing discipline and restoration where it is needed, and it also involves protecting the flock against the wolves, right? Paul, in his final letter to Timothy, uh, we say, and we see the concern for the Apostle Paul for the church of God in this letter. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and his, by his appearing and, by, and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, exhort with great patience and instruction, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And why is it that the, the shepherds, why is it that the overseers are to undertake this task? Well, because the flock ultimately does not belong to them. The flock belongs to God. Be on guard for yourself and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Why is it so important that the overseer is to shepherd the church? Well, because the church ultimately doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. God purchased the church with his own blood. And here's an amazing uh, uh, reference to the deity of Christ here, right? It says God purchased the church with his own blood, showing that in the mind of Paul, Jesus is indeed God. And we see that this is reflected in uh, John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So why is it so important that they be prepared? Why is it so important that they be ready? Well, because false teachers ultimately arise to attack the church. The Apostle Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that the night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Be on the alert. False 
false teachers are going to come in. Wolves will come in not sparing the flock. The flock must be protected from the wolves that come in from the outside. And these wolves, what do they look like? Well, certainly false religions, philosophies, deceptions, traditions of men. They come from the outside ultimately to destroy the church. There's a spiritual reality behind it, right? There are demonic powers at work who are influencing and seeking to destroy uh, the unity of the church as we have it. And we live in a day with very easy access to false teaching, right? Uh, think about all the ways that we can learn things, TV, radio, internet, and we can certainly use these things as a blessing, but at the same time, these things aren't to replace the local church that we've been placed in, and just as much as listening to preachers on TV and the radio can be a blessing, these can also be avenues for false teachers to come in in order to draw people away. So many times in so many churches, people will be drawn away, not because of something that someone inside the church has said, but because they have their ear open to an outside influence. Some TV preacher who is tickling their ears, who ultimately uh, fill, uh, sows seeds of deception and ultimately draws them away. Uh, we need to be ready for things like this. And it's not just on the elders, it's not just on the overseers to keep watch, but we need to keep watch for ourselves, pay attention. But the, I think the, the hardest thing about this, this passage is that uh, false teachers not only come from the outside, but false teachers likewise come from within, right? Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And verse 30 says, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So elders have the responsibility to keep members of the church, uh, to keep the church in check, not just guarding from threats on the outside, but also from the inside. Because wolves like to dress up as sheep, don't they? Wolves like to dress up as sheep. The Apostle Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. And once again, how easy is it for someone to come in to begin to sow seeds uh, that ultimately divide the church? The Lord Jesus taught us that tares are planted among the wheat, and we must be wary of those who would come and seek to cause division. In Romans, uh, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them, right? Because just as false teaching can come in from the outside, it can also creep in from the inside. And if we're not grounded in apostolic teaching, teaching from the scriptures under the authority of the elders that God has placed over us, then we ourselves may find ourselves being led astray. To Timothy, Paul says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth 
and will turn aside to myths. Now, finally, we'll get to the last section here. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who have been sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to those who are with me. In everything I showed you that by laboring in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words which the Lord, uh, of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul commends the church to the word of God. Paul's leaving the church of Ephesus, but the church will not be alone. They have God living and working among them, his temple, and they have the word of his grace. The church is not dependent on living leaders or a constant presence of apostles, right? The apostles were among the church only for a certain period of time. They laid the foundation stone, and that work, uh, that foundation is now being built upon by the church. And God is still active and present in the church. He has equipped us with everything that we need for our Christian walk, right? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're equipped with the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us who have believed. And the Lord Jesus is still with us, building his church and communing with us, right? When we gathered together at the Lord's table this morning to take part in the bread and the cup, did we gather alone or was the Lord Jesus truly with us, right? Uh, and not only do we have the presence of God, but we have been given his word in the scriptures. Paul to Timothy says this, you, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ. We've been given an inheritance. We've been sanctified. We are not alone in this Christian walk. So Paul then calls on the elders to look to him to be the example. Look to him as he quotes the Lord Jesus saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul sought to emulate Jesus as he lived among the Ephesians. And he says, I did this as an example for you. And to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So the call is then for the leaders who are left behind. You know, we may not be apostles, we may not be anything like that. However, what we can do is look to what the Apostle Paul has done. Called, uh, we're called to live in such a way that the church can still look to us as examples of how to walk. As the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, brethren, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So what we should be able to do, all of us, we should be able to look to those in the church and we should be able to see this is how the Lord Jesus walked. This is how the Apostle Paul walked. Are you one of those people that can be looked to in this way? It's a high calling, yes, absolutely. But we've been given everything that we need to carry it out. And now finally, Paul departs and we conclude our message. When Paul left the church of Ephesus, he did not leave them alone. He left them with everything they needed to continue their walk with God. And what Paul left to the church of Ephesus is what we have with us today. 
We have a call for the elders, for the leaders of the church, those who have been placed over us, to shepherd the flock of God, fending off wolves while feeding the sheep. We've been given an example of faithful ministry in the Apostle Paul. I don't need to see him with my own eyes to know what he looked like, right? When we read about the work of Peter and Paul and all the other saints in the book of Acts, this isn't just narrative. This isn't just to inform us. Rather, when we look at their lives, we can take them as instructions for how we ourselves are likewise to walk with the Lord. And then finally, we too are left with a commendation to God's grace and his word. We have not been left alone. God has given us everything that we need in our Christian walk. Through his grace, through the Holy Spirit who lives with us, and in his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are indeed thankful that we are not left alone We have no one that we can look to today as an apostle. The Lord Jesus is seated at your right hand, and yet we are not alone. We have been given everything that we need. We have been given tremendous godly leaders that we can look to as our examples who protect us, who feed us. We've been given an example of faithful ministry in the Apostle Paul and all the other apostles as we read the book of Acts. And we have been commended to God's grace and his word. We can look to the word of God as an answer to every question that we might have. And we've been equipped by the word of God to live out this Christian life that you have called us to. I pray that we would look to these things and remember these things and seek to walk faithfully according to your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.